Blog Talk Radio. The Catch with John Fisher on Blog Talk Radio, connecting life to faith. We're just trying to get it together, trying to help the fellow Welcome, everybody, to another episode of The Catch on Blog Talk Radio. And uh, we have, uh uh-oh, well, we had a guest, but I just lost him. So so let me take another shot here at, at getting him on the line. So hang on. Uh, this is fun. I always like calling people live. <laughs> okay. Hello. <laughs> did, did I hang up on you or what? <laughs> I don't know what happened. I don't know. I don't. I... That's very weird. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, I got you back. Here we are. And I was just telling okay. the people uh, a little bit about you. Um, uh, this is uh, Randall Bomber, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, he is a uh, historian uh, of American religion. Uh, he has an evangel- his interest, one of my more favorite people uh, on, the, on the earth, to tell you the truth. There's not too many people who can do what he can do. He is an evangelical believer, but he can talk about evangelicals to the rest of the world in ways that they can get it, they can understand, and he can speak, he can speak a, a basically a secular language about, uh, about faith. And uh, that's why he's, at, he's been at Columbia University and now at Dartmouth. Uh, that's why he has written a ton of books, and his mine eyes has seen the glory, uh, a journey into the evangelical subculture in America, which... Uh, uh, it was a PBS series and a fantastic book. Uh, and then uh, delving into some of the early, early movements uh, of churches uh, right after the Jesus movement. And, uh, and then on through to, uh, well, God in the White House, how faith shaped the presidency from John F. Kennedy to George W. Bush. Um, he's just done a ton of thinking about Christians in America and um, well there's an awful lot to think about because of what's happened in the last 30 years and uh, we've been really fortunate to have him on our show a couple times so um, we are fortunate now to have him back. Randall, welcome back to The Catch on Blog Talk Radio. I'm delighted to be here, John. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh Randall, we want to talk about uh, your your new book that's coming out early next year, and uh, I hope I have the title right. It's Solemn Solemn Reverence: The Separation of Church and State in America. Um, we want to talk about that An incredible concept that I have a feeling 
is uh, greatly misunderstood right now. And uh, I'd love to delve into this. Um, you know, I, I'd love to hear first uh, just a brief uh, description of what is a, a separation of church and state. And then I, I, uh, I really would like to get into, uh, you know, what the, what the founding fathers meant when they set this thing up and uh, where are we now in relationship to it. So this is going to be fascinating. <laughs> Let's do yeah. it, yeah. Well, I think the, the most important thing to remember about separation of church and state in America is that it was a radically new idea in Western culture to configure a, a government, the new government of the United States, in a way that you did not have the interlocking support of uh, religion or faith. And there are a lot of reasons for that historically. Uh, I think one of the biggest reasons was the fact that if you look at the American colonies, that is the uh, what became the, the, the 13 original states, and you look at the religious composition of each of these colonies, it was extraordinarily diverse. That is to say, you had, yes, you have Puritans up in uh, New England, Massachusetts, and also in Connecticut. In Rhode Island, you had Baptists. Uh, the beginning of the Baptist tradition in America was with Roger Williams in 1631 in, uh, in Rhode Island. And you, if you go down south, south from there, you have uh, in New York, or what became New York, uh, the Dutch Reformed Church, but also a whole lot of other religious groups in that area. In New Jersey, you had, again, the Dutch Reformed Church, but you also had Quakers. You also had Presbyterians. And if you go west from there in, in Pennsylvania, you had William Penn's Holy Experiment, which was a a whole new idea of religious toleration with Quakers, but also all these German groups, Schwenkfelders and Dunkers and uh, Mennonites. And, you know, you just keep going down the list. Maryland, Quaker, uh, you had uh, English Catholics. Down in Virginia, you had uh, Anglicans. Uh, in Delaware, by the way, you had uh, uh, Swedish Lutherans. And then in the mm-hmm. South, you had uh, the Anglican Church, but you also had a whole lot of folk religious practices. And if you go down to Florida, you had Spanish Catholics. So as the, the founders were, were uh, sitting down to configure this new nation, they said, how are we going to do, deal with religion? And there were uh, spirited debates about this. But what came out of this was the First Amendment, which was uh, drafted by James Madison, and um, the notion that you could have a government that was not supported or and uh, supported by or was not supporting any one religious group. And this is, I think, the genius of American life. Um, Mm -hmm. We in America have a religious culture that is off the charts compared Mm -hmm. to any other Western nation, even any nation in the world. Uh, You look at England, for example. You have a state church, the Church of England. Uh, last I checked, about 3% of the population still showed up on uh, Sunday mornings in Anglican churches. And uh, here in America, however, you have this vibrant, salubrious religious culture that is the direct consequence of hmm. the founders deciding that there would be no favored religion, no state church. And uh, that, I think, is the part of the genius of American uh, American life. Wow. Uh so um how is this un, un, understood then in, in the in the early days uh of our founding uh did it go 
did it go well then, or did they was were there difficulties? Um, there, there were difficulties, and uh, it, it, it also needs to be said that uh, even though the First Amendment had established this notion of the separation of church and state, uh, the individual states at that time had their own uh, ideas, and the last two states to uh, disestablish the, the, uh, the religion were Connecticut and Massachusetts. Connecticut in 18... Uh, 1818 in Massachusetts in 1833, and uh, there's a there's a wonderful story about this. Uh, one of the the leading ministers in Connecticut was uh, Lyman Beecher in Litchfield, Connecticut, and as the uh, Connecticut legislature was debating whether or not to uh, to um, um, initiate a referendum on whether or not the Connecticut Church or that is the Congregational Church in Connecticut should be disestablished, that is, no longer having state support. Lyman Beecher was just, you know, he was at loose ends. <laughs> he said, this is the end of morality in Connecticut. It's going to be the, it's going to be the worst thing that, uh, that could happen to uh, religion and faith in Connecticut. And then uh, the, uh, the citizens of Connecticut, by a, by a narrow margin, actually, voted to disestablish religion in Connecticut, that is to no, no longer provide state support for the Congregational Church. Two years later, Lyman Beecher writes, this is the best thing that ever happened to religion in Connecticut. <laughs> it was all over the place because no longer wow. is the state involved in, uh, in, in religion, in, in the faith. And uh, he understood this as a, a wonderful liberation for, for faith. And, and it worked. And it happened in Massachusetts. So why then, uh, why is it so, why is the separation of church and state so important? I think it's important. Uh, when you look back to the, to the origins of this notion, actually you go back to Roger Williams, who was uh, the founder of the Baptist tradition in America. And Baptists historically, at least until 1979, have been, the guardians of this wall of separation between church and state. And Roger Williams wrote in 1644, he said that it was important to uh, separate the garden of the church from the wilderness of the world by means of a wall of separation. That's where the, the, the metaphor comes from. And it, it's important to, to remember uh, in, in understanding that, that language uh, that uh, Roger Williams and other people in living in 17th century uh, New England did not uh, were not members of the Sierra Club. That is, they were not the fanciers of the wilderness. Wilderness for them was a place of darkness where evil lurked. And so when Roger Williams is talking about protecting the garden of the church from the wilderness of the world by means of a wall of separation, what he's primarily concerned about is safeguarding the integrity of the faith from too close an association with the state. And that's a, that's a very important point, I think, that gets lost in all these contemporary discussions about uh, church and state in America. Roger Williams understood that the integrity of the faith would be compromised if it was too closely associated with the state. Okay. Well, 
how do how do we understand? Uh, this is a big question. You probably impossible to answer, but um, but generally, how do you think people understand separation of church and state today? How do they think about it? Is it different from from this? Well, people have. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's fair to say people have all sorts of misconceptions about this. You know, some people would say that uh, separation of church and state means that somebody who is an ordained minister, for example, cannot run for public office. Well, that's just that's crazy. That's nonsense. Uh, that's not what uh, what the founders intended. And in fact, in Article, I think Article Six. Don't quote me on that. Uh, the Constitution is very specific about that, is that there is no religious test for holding political office. Uh, mm. So uh, you know, that's, that's not the case at all. Nor is it the case, I believe, that people of faith need to uh, somehow uh, mute their religious convictions in the arena of public discourse. I don't believe that at all. In fact, I believe that the arena of public discourse would be impoverished without those voices of faith. At the same time, however, I also want to emphasize that I think that the, the norms and the etiquette of democracy should be observed in any sorts of discussions. That is to say, yes, it's okay for me as a Christian, as an evangelical Christian, to say that on the basis of, of my beliefs, I should take exposition on this matter of public debate. But, um, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm fully entitled to do that, but at the same time, uh, the, the etiquette of democracy means that my voice is only one voice in that arena of public discourse, and that uh, I need to be able to listen to other voices who hmm. might be informed by other uh, convictions, uh, including um, atheist or agnostic uh, convictions, and uh, consider that as well as as a legitimate contribution to public discourse. Right, right. Well, um, where what are what are some other misconceptions that we have today uh, about this? Because I, you know, for the last thirty years, evangelicals have gotten very much involved in politics. And oh yes, <laughs> I, have, I have a feeling that a, a, a lot of them are, are are wishing to see something that might even be a violation of the separation of church and state. Sure. Am I right? Well, I, yeah, I, th- I think that's right. For example, I was one of the expert witnesses in the Alabama Ten Commandments case. You probably remember that case. Yeah. where uh, Roy Moore, who was the chief justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, installed this uh, Ten Commandments monument in the middle of uh, the judicial building. And uh, I, you know, um, you know, I, was, I was very clear about that. Uh, I, I'm a person of faith, absolutely. Um, but uh, because he insisted on the Ten Commandments, commandments and no other religious representations in that space, that represented a violation of the what's called the establishment clause of the First Amendment. That is to say, that the uh, the, the the government should uh, favor no one religious tradition in uh, um, in, in public life. And so, um, 
and, and my testimony in part was that religion has flourished in America precisely because of the First Amendment and the Establishment Clause. Uh, that is to say, the First Amendment, and I use this, uh, this analogy rather frequently and have for years, by the way, uh, the First Amendment uh, it really set up a kind of free marketplace for religion in America where you have all these religious groups who are competing with one another for popular followings. And that lends an energy and a dynamism uh, and a vitality to religion in America that we you just don't see uh, in other parts of the world. Uh, so uh, uh, the, the irony to me about Roy Moore is that he kind of claims to be a Baptist. Well, Roger Williams, the founder of the Baptist tradition in America, would be horrified at uh, what uh, Roy Moore tried to do in, in, in Alabama. And in mm. fact, the courts, of course, uh, said this is a violation of the First Amendment and it has to be removed. Uh, he refused to remove it, and so he was removed from office. <laughs> so there, it's, a, it's a rather uh, complicated case and uh, kind of humorous at some level, I think, in some ways. Yeah. But again, Roger Williams' concern was that linking the faith to the state or to the government would diminish the faith. And my, you know, my little uh, um, uh, postscript to this whole story is that once uh, the court decided that it was, and it was a proper decision, that it represented a violation of the First Amendment, the establishment cause, and uh, Judge Thompson ordered it removed, one of the protesters screamed, Get your hands off my God! As oh, my. the workers were preparing to remove the monument. Mm-hmm. Well, if I'm not mistaken, John, one of those commandments says something about a graven image, and that <laughs> again was precisely Roger Williams' point: that mm. uh, if you uh, if you commingle church and state, you will eventually fetishize the, and trivialize the faith. And I think the whole uh, the whole caper, the whole Roy's Rock caper, uh, illustrates that point uh, um, beautifully. So, so what is that guy who's crying out there? Because I think I think he represents a lot of Christians uh, the way they think today, like uh, prayer in schools and uh, yeah. uh, you know all. Uh, like you say, the Ten Commandments. Um, right. What, what are they well, really to understand, and where does that come from? Well, let, let's talk about that. All right, prayer in schools. First of all, the Supreme Court never outlawed prayer in schools. Uh, one of my heroes, and I expect one of yours, is uh, the late Republican senator from Oregon, uh, Mark Hatfield. Yes. Uh, an ev- evangelical Christian, a good Baptist, uh, a strong believer, and uh, he, he went onto the floor of the Senate uh, one time. Actually, I was I was uh, in town that day when he did it, and uh, he said, uh, "Nobody ever said that I can't pray in school. I prayed in school constantly, especially before math tests. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, nobody's saying you can't pray in school. The issue is public prayer in public." schools. And then if you start to say, okay, let's, 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 let's talk through this whole process. If you're going to have public prayer in public schools, who's going to be doing the praying? 
who's writing the prayer? Uh, I actually heard uh, some religious right people. I was at a conference one time up at, uh, at Gordon College, and they said, well, on Monday, we're going to have a Christian prayer. On Tuesday, we're going to have a Jewish prayer. On Wednesday, we're going to have a Hindu prayer, uh, you know, and, and so forth. And I thought, you've got to be kidding. I mean, this talk about a way to trivialize and diminish the faith. Uh, this, again, circles back to Roger Williams' concern about protecting the garden of the church from the wilderness of the world. I mean, nothing would be more uh, diminishing to the faith, in my judgment, than to have that sort of parade of, of prayers in public schools. And again, the Supreme Court never said that, that uh, students can't pray in, in school. The issue is public prayer, prescribed prayer in, in public schools. And uh, if you think about it, I think, uh, and I expect even your your audience, I hope they would uh, understand that this is not a good not a good thing for the integrity of the faith. Yeah. Wow. So, but where does that thinking come from, Randall? Um, well, I mean, it it, it it's kind of it's sloganeering. It's sloganeering, John. I mean, it's okay. We're taking God out of the public schools. Well, that's just nonsense. I'm sorry. It's not. It's, that's not true. Uh, again, uh, people can pray, and 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 again, you know, evangelicals, Protestants understand prayer as this intimate conversation with God, uh, not something that uh, is reduced to formulas or or rote prayer. And uh, I, I just don't, I just don't see this as as an issue that uh, the people should be exercised about. I understand they might be, but uh, I, I think it 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 derives from a misunderstanding of the entire uh, issue. Um, is there any 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 hope for uh, setting this thing straight? And <laughs> positive well, about about this, you know. Well, I think I mean I think part of the issue, part of the problem is that you have a lot of people who are, you know, frankly, kind of uh, uh, fashioning careers out of out of misinformation and mm. uh, misrepresentation of this. I mean, you, know, you have people around saying. You know, and the United States is a Christian nation. It was founded as a Christian nation. Well, that's just demonstrably false. Uh, it, 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 it was not founded as a Christian nation. Uh, some of the founders were Christian, yes, but actually they were a minority. I mean, the, the key founders were, were actually deists. Uh, Benjamin Franklin would never be considered a Christian. Uh, he would never uh, be allowed to be a member of any uh, evangelical church that I know of. Um, mm. And there's a lot of uh, misleading misinformation out there and uh, people are making, uh, as I say, fashioning entire careers out of, uh, out of putting forward very, very uh, uh, false information. And uh, I, I think that's really unfortunate, unfortunate. How can we, uh, how can we best uh, combat that kind of thinking? Well, I think it's important that people be historically informed, I think, uh, and, and understand, uh, again, I make this, this statement uh, frequently, um, the First Amendment is the best friend that faith has ever had, at least in American life, uh, in that it is created for us or allowed, uh, allowed for us 
Americans to have a very, very uh, vibrant and uh, salubrious religious culture and uh, trying to uh, whittle away at that by advocating prescribed prayers in public schools um, and, and even the Ten Commandments in public places. Now, people will say, well, oh, wait a minute, you got the Ten Commandments on the Supreme Court. Yes, you do, but you also have the Code of Hammurabi. You also have uh, other representations as the foundations for American law. And uh, understanding the Ten Commandments in that context is a very different thing from uh, posting them in, in public places. Now, Roy Moore, uh, and I said this at the time, I mean, uh, he's perfectly free as long as he can uh, convince the local zoning, zoning officials to put the Ten Commandments in his front yard. Uh, nobody's nobody's going to object to that. But public places, that's another matter. And it's a violation of the First Amendment and the separation of church and state. Hmm. Um, what does it mean, uh, Randall, to to have your faith inform your politics uh that's got to be tough for some in some areas sure uh, sure what i'm thinking well, of it, is uh, well go ahead and answer the first question and then, uh, <laughs> well no I, I think certainly i mean I, my faith certainly informs my politics uh I, you know, jesus is pretty clear in in matthew 25 about uh, the responsibility of his followers to our fellow citizens. And uh, he instructed us to care for the least of these. And this certainly has political implications, it seems to me, uh, in terms of uh, public policy, um, uh, and, um, healthcare, uh, care for the poor, providing for uh, the needs of those who are unable to support themselves for one reason or another. I, I think that has uh, enormous implications. Uh, you look at the at the, um, uh, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, uh, and also the New Testament, Jesus tells us to welcome the stranger, to treat the foreigner as one of our own. That mm-hmm. certainly has implications for immigration policy these days. Uh, the whole issue in Christian tradition, the tradition of uh, just war, when is it legalized or morally justified to, uh, to wage war? And there's been centuries of thinking about this from a Christian perspective. And I think that uh, any public servant, whether he be president of the United States or a state legislator or a, a member of a local um, town council, uh, needs mm-hmm. to be aware of these things. And, and those uh, principles should inform how he or she uh, conducts public policy. Uh I've been thinking lately about a, a, a politician is a representative of, of the people. Um, the people elect yes. him or her. And uh, but then a politician will have their own um, belief system. What, what, do you, what does a politician do when their, their beliefs are in conflict with the majority of the people who put them in office, what they want to see. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, I, I again, uh, coming back to, to Mark Hatfield, a, a person I greatly admire. Um, he, he was very much out of step with many of his uh, constituents 
in his opposition, his very early opposition to the war in Vietnam. But he understood that as a matter of conscience, and uh, he he stuck to his conscience. Uh, there was an, actually another example later in his career. Uh, you remember in 1994, Newt Gingrich uh, ran uh, uh, his uh, was able to elect a majority of Republicans to the House of Representatives of, with his contract uh, with America which included a support for a balanced budget amendment. And it, came, it was passed the House, came to the Senate, and uh, uh, the, the Republicans were in control of the Senate, and they needed Mark Hatfield's vote to pass that legislation. He thought it was morally wrong. I think he's absolutely mm-hmm. right about that, by the way. And uh, he actually uh, offered to resign his seat. He went to the majority leader, uh, Robert Dole, and said, I'll resign my seat, but I cannot violate my conscience. And Dole mm-hmm. um, rightly said, no, don't do that, Mark. We need you here in the Senate uh, because you're the conscience of the Senate in many respects. Uh, so uh, he, he, to me, is, a, is a, an exemplar, mm-hmm. a kind of hero of that sort of uh, uh, taking the stand for conscience. Hmm. Okay. Do you ever, do you think they ever have to go against their conscience because of, uh, because of the people they represent? Does that ever happen? Well, I don't, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, uh, I think principles are, are, are much more important than that. And there have been examples of uh, various politicians who have voted their conscience and then were voted out of office, but they also understood that as, uh, as the price for, uh, for being faithful to their convictions. Mm-hmm. Not an easy choice. I, I, I'm sure. So that's why it's good for a politician to uh, make that clear in the beginning before they're elected. I would, Is it- I would think so. Yeah, I would think so. Yes. You know, this is where I stand. These are, this is my moral, moral compass. And I think we have, uh, you know, if I may say so, we have far too few politicians these days who are willing to, uh, to live according to a moral compass. Yeah. Oh gosh. Well, I knew this was going to go fast and it did. (laughs) And, uh, time is basically up. I, I just think I want to say in, in, in conclusion here um, about that, the, the whole idea of free, setting people free to come to their own conclusions about things. And uh, I yes. think what we need to realize as, as, as Christians is that that's a better environment for real faith than, than to somehow put constraints on people in terms of what they are going to believe or do. I think that's right. And I think American history has, uh, has borne that out, uh, the wisdom of that, uh, of that decision. And again, I want to emphasize that the whole notion of the First Amendment and the separation of church and state was a radical idea at the time. Uh, Europe had never tried something like that. And uh, I think the experiment, uh, 200 plus years into that experiment, uh, shows that it was, uh, it's worked out pretty well. Great. Well, I wish that um, somehow uh, everybody could get a hold of your book. <laughs> or you could oh, I do too. I assure you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, boy. It would be great if, uh, you know, uh, 
so at least at least those who are hearing my voice right now um, can look into this further and and uh, and be a proponent for for the kind of thing that uh, I think really helped to set people free. And I think I think too, even on a personal level, um, uh, we we need to have environment when we're talking with non Christians to to allow them to think what they think and believe what they believe and, 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 and come to the conclusions on their own as we walk and talk. Um, right. I think that's part of how, how we learn uh, to offer grace to people. Um, yeah. I don't know. Do you agree with that? Right. And that's, I do. And that's, that's following the example of Jesus, I think. And uh, yeah. that's, that's what we're all. That's what we all, all aspire to. Yeah. Well, Randall, thank you so much, and I'm I'm sure this isn't the last time we'll have you on, um, because uh, it's just so great to have your thoughts, and uh, so I pray uh, blessings on your work, and and uh, just keep it up, and this is great. Thank you, John. God bless. All right. Thank you. Bye bye. But well, there you go, folks. Um, some great thinking on Turkey State. That's uh, you know, remember that even if the value to pay in terms of people's lives, the conditions of price, the enterprise, that. They got to make their own mind. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.